This year marks a special double anniversary: 200 years since the birth of Charles Darwin, and 150 years since the publication of his most famous work, *The Origin of Species*. In the UK alone, there will be no shortage of media events, conferences, books, and articles to celebrate the fact. Indeed, the British Council's Darwin Now project is one of the fruits of such initiatives. Why the frenzy of activity? What lies behind Darwin's enduring appeal? We posed the question to Steve Jones, professor of evolutionary genetics at University College London, and himself an author of a series of books aimed at updating Darwin for the modern audience. He shared his reflections via a computer link. I think Darwin was special, really, because he invented a science. He invented the science that we now call biology. Of course, there were lots of people working on flowers, or digging up fossils, or breeding sheep and cattle before then, but none of them realised that they were actually doing the same thing. But what Darwin did was to show that, to show that there was a kind of unitary theory, evolution, which united all that material. I often think that his theory is, in some ways, the grammar of biology. You can't understand a language, you can't speak a language, unless you understand its grammar. Either consciously or subconsciously, and you can't be a biologist unless you understand evolution. So I think it's an anniversary well worth celebrating. What was the crux of Darwin's ideas? Darwin described his own theory in a pretty tight nutshell. Evolution, he said, is descent with modification. Descent, the passage of information, we'd say today, from one generation to the next, and modification, the fact that that passage is imperfect. Over time, those changes will build up, and you will get change. It's inevitable. It's bound to happen. But we can rephrase that in slightly more telling terms today. We can say evolution is genetics plus time. If you've got genetics, DNA, all that stuff. If it copies itself with mistakes, that's mutations. And if you've got time, and we've got three and a half thousand million years since the origin of life, evolution is absolutely inevitable. So that's the core of Darwin's theory. It's extraordinarily simple. But Darwin had a second idea, and that's really where he was so smart, because he realised that what's being copied in biology is itself a copying machine. So that if one version inherits a change and mutation, which makes it more likely that it will survive and reproduce itself, then that change will become more common and will spread. And over time, those differences will build up, and new forms of life will emerge by what he called natural selection, inherited differences. In the chances of reproducing, so that's Darwinism in one minute. No doubt, something that would have surprised Darwin is the fact that we can actually see evolution in action, even within our own lifetime. A spectacular example of this is the evolution of disease, particularly HIV/AIDS. What's remarkable is that you can see Darwin's natural selection, inherited differences in the chances of staying alive, hard at work. We're pretty clear now that HIV only began to spread from isolated villages in Africa in about 1910 or so, when the first African cities began to grow and began to get big enough to sustain an epidemic. And it got into the West in 1979 and became a global epidemic by the end of the 80s. It was pretty soon found that some people were doing much better when infected with the virus than were others. The way the virus works is, you become infected. The virus then begins to hijack and destroy the white blood cells that control your immune system. It gets in by attaching itself to a particular molecule on the surface 
of the white cells. And it can take years before any symptoms show themselves, and the symptoms begin to happen when the immune system is finally breaking down. And it pretty soon became clear that some people were infected and really were doing very well. Their immune systems were in good shape 10 or 15 years after they picked up the virus. And that turned out to be due to the fact that they, just by chance, had inherited a particular version of that attachment site on the surface of their white blood cells to which the virus could not stick. It couldn't get in. So they were infected, but they didn't suffer very greatly from the effect. Other people didn't have that. The virus got into the bloodstream and infected all their white blood cells very quickly, and so they died quickly. And that's a beautiful, and I use that word advisedly, that's a beautiful example of Darwin's natural selection in action. And it goes further than that, because if you look at Africans who have been exposed now for several generations to HIV, it turns out that many more of them have got multiple copies of that protective gene than Europeans who've only been exposed to HIV for one or two generations. Indeed, if you stand further back from the problem and look at chimpanzees, and that's where the virus came from, they've got many, many copies of this gene, and there the virus causes them no harm at all. So that's almost a perfect example of natural selection in front of our eyes with as proof of its action in the past. Our friend, the chimpanzee, who gave us the virus in the first place, has evolved through the whole system and now can resist the virus entirely. The evolutionary tug-of-war between pathogens and their hosts is repeated time and again across the plant and animal kingdoms, with direct consequences for human welfare. Take the rise of antibiotic resistance in bacteria or pesticide resistance in plants. Fern Elston Baker, an historian of science with a background in environmental studies, argues that evolution can offer insights into yet more of today's most pressing concerns. There are lots of benefits to understanding evolutionary theory, not only the understanding of how species evolve over time, but also how they interact with the environments around them. One of the debates that's been going on for the past 150 years involves what level natural selection happens at. For Darwin, it happened at the level of an organism. For thinkers in the late 20th century, it happened at the level of the gene. Today, we're beginning to think more about how the gene, the organism and the environment interact. This is going to be of tantamount importance, especially when we think of the impact of global climate change. What is the role of the environment in evolution? How will changes in the environment impact on future species? It was actually through studying the links between ecology and evolution that Elston Baker herself was drawn to Darwin. What really brought me to Darwin was that when I was an undergraduate studying environmental sciences, I started to study evolutionary ecology how organisms interact with each other and how this can affect them in the long term. I then became interested in the history of Darwinism and really started to wonder about how the ideas in Darwinism and in evolutionary theory had changed over time themselves. One of the things that fascinates me and still fascinates me about Darwinism is that there is this dynamism, there is this discourse, there is this debate. While obviously we're celebrating the great man Darwin in 2009, he wasn't a lone voice in the wilderness. He was part of a wider scientific community with a number of fluid ideas about how the world works. I find this fascinating. I find the historical discourses and the way they run right up to present are alive with different characters and people. And Darwin is one of those. 
We'll be exploring the context in which Darwin developed his ideas in later podcasts. We shall also be looking at the ways in which our understanding of evolution has itself changed. Have developments in genetics and our unravelling of the structure of DNA itself vindicated or demolished Darwin's original ideas? Steve Jones. Charles Darwin was, among his many talents, a great anatomist. He spent eight years cutting up little tiny barnacles under the microscope, as many people don't know. That skill has been lost, many people say, but of course it hasn't. It's just been reinvented. It's called molecular biology. And that's what the study of DNA sequences is. It's anatomy. It's just comparing the structure of creatures in the way that Darwin compared the structure of barnacles, but using the fundamental underpinning of all anatomy, which is the double helix. And what it's done is to build on the foundations laid by Darwin and his predecessors to show that we belong to the same shared family. We share about something like 95% of our DNA sequence with chimpanzees, something a bit less with orangutans, and for that matter, about 50% of our DNA with bananas, which is exactly what Darwin would have predicted. It's shown how much the creatures of the world speak the same language. It's a cause of amazement to me that people are not amazed by the fact that you can put a human gene into a bacterium and managed to persuade it to make a human protein. And that's now done, not exactly routinely, but widely, to make things like insulin, to make things like human growth hormone. Why should that be, except for evolution? Only because we descend from the same ancestors as bacteria, can we take one of the cogs in the gigantic machine that makes humans work and insert it into the same place in the smaller machine that makes bacteria work and make it turn around? That's amazing, really. And that's what comparative genomics, as it's called, has really done. It's moved humans off the pinnacle, which they felt they occupied, as being different from the rest of the living world, and said, there's nothing special about you, at least when it comes to DNA.